Hi there, and welcome to another edition. We call it edition, episode, whatever it is, of the Dishcast. This time, we have um, someone whom the Dish has been involved with now for 15 years altogether. Um, one of my favorite early writers out there who immediately got all of our attention. And it was a guest blogger for a few times, I think, or oh, maybe once, I can't remember, a couple of times maybe, on the dish itself. Um, and it feels, it feels like I know this dude, but we've never actually properly met or interacted until right now. It is Frederick, Fred, Frederick, Freddie DeBoer, Frederick, I guess is the original name. Freddie DeBoer, he's a writer and an academic, and he's been a public, prolific freelancer at publications such as the New York Times, the Washington Post, Harper's, the Guardian, Politico, and of course, the Dish, the Daily Dish. And his first book was The Cult of Smart, which we also reviewed on the Dish. And his new one is How Elites Ate the Social Justice Movement. And he also has recently started a Substack, like all the other cool peeps. Um, so check out his, what's your Substack actually called, Freddie? That's just Freddie DeBoer. I, I've never been able to come up with a cool title for a blog. I never so. did either. I, I really am not. The dish was something I made up at the very last minute. I wasn't that very happy with it. But anyway, it's done and it's here. Um, just to give you a heads up of who's coming on in the future, pretty near future, we have the, uh, well, how should we call him? We have Vivek Ramaswamy coming on to, uh, to, to ladle out some of his uh, shtick. We have Leo Sapir, who is probably one of the most interesting and well-versed, uh, very well-researched analysts of what's going on with treatment of children with gender dysphoria. And Ian Baruma, a uh, great writer, editor, briefly editor of the New York Review of Books um, on his new book, The Collaborators, Three Stories of Deception, and survival in World War II. Also, Spencer Claven, the young reactionary, is coming on. Martha Nussbaum, the liberal philosopher. Matthew Crawford, a really fascinating guy interested in reviving craft work, among other things. And two New York Times alumni, alumni, illum <laughs> not quite alumni. One of them isn't. No, both aren't. They're still there. David Brooks and Pamela Paul. Two people beloved of the online left, as I'm sure Freddie knows. Um, so, Freddie, how are you? Thanks for coming on. Uh, I'm great, Andrew. Thanks so much for having me. Tell me what it's like. I mean, do you think that anybody really knows anybody online? It feels to me like I have a sense of your personality, your ideas, your mind, um, just your attitude from what you write. And yet... Who you are obviously is very different than what you write, and yet we continue to have these kind of strange friendships, as it were, quote unquote, that exist only virtually. What do you what do you make of that difference? Yeah, I think that what I would say is like it. It all happens in the context of whether a, uh, someone, any particular person, also has thick social bonds in the ER, in the IRL space. Um, People sometimes assume, because of some things that I've written, that I am disdainful of sort of any online relationships. That's not true. There's uh, a number of people um, that I'm quite affectionate for, like you, 
um, that I've known for a long time. Uh, you know, the question is, is are you matching your sort of online relationships with uh, people that you see in the flesh and blood uh, <clears throat> where you are not able to fully sort of construct an identity for them? You actually appear there before them. Um, if you have that, then I think that online relationships can be very fulfilling. Um, I think the, the problem is, is that we have many, many people now um, <clears throat> who, and not entirely due to their own failings, uh, feel that they have no means through which to form in real life connections. And so all of their relationships are uh, online. And I think that that can, can be unhealthy. But I think that um, there's a lot of people like, that I care about, yeah, who I've been talking to for over a decade, and I don't think I've ever met them before. Yeah, and I, I agree, obviously, with that. Um, it, it, you are becoming friends with somebody's public performance, which is different mm -hmm. than their entire private or complicated personal narrative. And I think that also helps people loathe human beings online in ways that they never would if they actually had to encounter that person with all their quirks and nuances and pluses and minuses. And that has led to a kind of easy demonization of other human beings, which, which I feel has been just incredibly hurtful to lots of people in ways that is, is really untrue and unnecessary. Have you felt hurt? Obviously, you felt hurt by stuff that's been written about you and, and said about you online. Well, you know, my heart is cold and dead, so I don't you know. I, um, I, I, I do, and I, and I don't. It's, it's never. I've, I've taken and given a lot of shit for a long time, um, and I recognize that um, a lot of the heat that I've taken has been from my own conduct, and that's fine. It's not so much someone saying you suck, right? Someone saying you suck is just life, right? If you're going to have a, a, a public uh, face, you know, I mean, sometimes someone will write something critical of me and someone else will get offended on my behalf. And I'll say, hey, look, you know, I'm, if, if I'm trying to be provocative all the time, then people are going to get provoked and you have to sort of, you know, own up to that. What gets to me is just the constant serial misrepresentation of what I actually believe, right? Like, I, um, uh, I know we'll get into the book later, but, you know, one of the things that's happened with the book is that a lot of the reaction to it um, <clears throat> has framed it as me just sort of like mocking Black Lives Matter or mocking Me Too or et cetera. Um, when the, the whole genesis of the book, the whole point was to say, I want to offer sympathetic criticism to these things. And that's what gets to you over time, because... Um, you know, when you interact with people, you never know if they're actually interacting with you or with what someone else has said about you that actually isn't true. Yeah, my view was always I don't care what they say about me as long as it isn't true, which right. which is, is, is a way of sort of saying if I were to worry about all the lies that people say, and sometimes not actual conscious lies, they're just, just misunderstandings or garbled Chinese whispers about something that you believe um, at the same time, you just run a risk of being, uh, and, and this is what the campaign is, or is often designed to do, dismissed by lots of people before they've ever begun to even read what you've had to say. I must say in the book, you go out of your way to, I mean, in some ways more than I thought was necessary to, to affirm your belief in the principles that many of these groups that you criticize also hold. I mean, I, I, this is the gentlest criticism of these groups, certainly gentler than I would have uh, delivered. 
Um, but of course, they never see that. They will never see that. Right. They will only see the thing they want to see. And you can you can write stuff explicitly anticipating this even and saying, I'm not saying this. And the reviews will be, he said this. And it just becomes incredibly infuriating to have to deal with that. But at some point, you also have to let it go because there's no way you can control this stuff. I mean, even before pub day, I had to force, I had to shame the Washington Post into issuing a correction of their review because it contains just a, a, a just a, a flat factual inaccuracy about the book. What was that? Um, what was the inaccuracy? So uh, I I reflected on the fact that during 2020, there were a lot of people who were sort of explicitly condoning riots, or if not explicitly condoning riots, then attacking anyone who was critiquing riots. I wouldn't have thought that that would be a controversial thing to remember because that just happened. Like it was just a fact that people were were doing that. Um, and the the reviewer dismissed it and said that, um, oh, he cites only a single source. But in the, the very passage she's referring to, uh, to, I cite eight sources, including two polls. It, it, it was, so it was just like mathematically wrong. It's, it, um, and I got them to change it. It's funny because that was actually the precipitate, one of the precipitating events for my being canned at New York Magazine is that they refused to let me use the word riot to describe what was going on in some parts. And I mean, again, I contextualized it. It wasn't all riots, but riots were happening. People's businesses were being damaged. Arson was occurring. And I was had to re-describe it as unrest, at which point I said, if I can't use the words I want as a writer, I'm not writing. And so that was when I had to pull that column. Um, so the idea that it didn't happen is also not, this is one of the frustrating things. It, people saying it isn't happening or it didn't happen when you bloody well observed it and you actually have evidence in front of you. Uh, and really what they're talking about is a wish, not a reality. Mm. Yeah. And, I, you know, um, so one of my little points that I, you know, a, a big overarching point that I make is that just the left is forever sort of achieving symbolic victory and no material victory. Uh, one, one, I guess, maybe victory you could call it is that um, uh, and Wikipedia on many Wikipedia uh, articles that are related to or refer to uh, race riots of the past. Um, the word riot was systematically removed and replaced with the word uprising, um, which is this sort of thing of uh, sort of uh, symbolic politics at its best. You know, I I mean, there are there's so but at least that's about like my my actual work. Right. And I can say, hey, this isn't true. Um, one of the weirdest ones, um, I want to say about nine months ago or so, uh, some people were promulgating on uh twitter that my girlfriend is uh inappropriately young for me um my my girlfriend was born in the carter administration I, I i am a year and a half younger than she is right and i if you've sort of been in this position as often as i have been over so many years you kind of just have to say like you know what I, there's nothing you can do about it like i'm just not going to get i'm not going to get upset about that stuff because people just feel no responsibility to say anything true well, what's interesting is that the criticisms often come from people who are really not that far away from you substantively. And you mm -hmm. don't get the same kind of vicious personal takedowns from people who are on the other side of, of the debate. I mean, I, I don't, I, it's, it's, always the, it's always the sort of left with some caveats who get crashed, crushed by the left. Mm 
as opposed to by the right. Um, and the goal, of course, is quite explicitly to drive you out of the public sphere. And that's what they, they really do want to shut you up, which is a kind of, for me anyway, especially for writers, the weirdest thing to want to happen to anybody else. Um, let me start, as we usually do, with your childhood. Tell me about your parents. Who, who were they? What did they do? Sure. Uh, my father was a professor at Wesleyan University. He was a professor of theater. Uh, his uh, specialty was uh, East Asian uh, puppetry and dance, uh, which led, among other things, to a childhood in which we frequently visited Bali in Indonesia um, for long stretches while he did research, which was lovely um, and exposed us to all kinds of uh, stuff. But he was also he was a very complicated person. Um, he had lived in New York in the black, and he worked in the black box theater scene in the 1970s for 10 years. Um, and we grew up in Connecticut an hour and a half from the city. So oftentimes they'd come up or we'd go down to visit them. So I just sort of grew up around a lot of poets and weirdos and hippies. Um, I remember in the late 1990s, uh, thanks to you, among other people, uh, you know, gay marriage sort of became a, a topic of big interest. And it was interesting to me because my father's gay friends were largely the type who would say something like, you know, marriage is for breeders, right? Like they would disdain marriage rather than want to fight for it. Um, <clears throat> almost all of them are gone now uh, from from AIDS or, or, or whatever. Um but uh, so, yeah, that was my sort of milieu. My mother was a uh, sort of flower child um, who uh, uh, did a lot of local sort of environmental activism. Um, she saved this uh, arboretum that had been planted by Colonel Wadsworth at like the turn of the, I think like the turn of the 18th century, maybe. And so she fought, she fought to save this grove of really old trees from development. And she was really super involved, invested in public schools. And we lived in, it was pretty bucolic for a while. We lived in a little white house surrounded by fields, you know. Um, when I was seven, my mother died of brain cancer. Um, it was unusual for brain cancer in that uh, it happened very quickly. Usually, you know, cancer is a slow uh, thing, but she had a headache on a uh, Wednesday and she was gone by Sunday. Good Lord. Um, so that, mu that, must uh, have, that must have been easily the most searing event in your life uh, certainly yeah i mean yeah it was certainly yeah it was uh, i mean like just um definitely there was a before and after that right i mean it was just it was just a new everything my father had never been what you would call a teetotaler he in fact was so I mean, he was a man of huge appetites um he was everybody's favorite person to be at a party he was like physically big he's even bigger than i am um, like just like a big strapping guy and he uh you know um would clap people on the back and sing songs while they drank and he just had this big booming personality but unfortunately his you know his already sort of serious drinking problem after my mother died um really really got bad and uh he was just sort of fall down drunk for most of the rest of his life um he was not at all abusive, um, and he was, in fact, very, very loving. Uh, the problem was is just that he would just go and lock himself in his room and drink a bottle of vodka every night, and we wouldn't see him for six hours. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there just wasn't 
a figure there to sort of take care of us, to get us to um, uh, a dentist appointment or to tell me to, you know, wash my hair. Right. So uh, junior high was uh, really hard for me. I actually ended up really enjoying high school, but junior high was really hard for me because I wasn't bathing. I wasn't washing my hair. I wasn't brushing my teeth. I wasn't wearing deodorant. I wasn't changing my clothes um, because there was no one to sort of tell me and show me how to do that. Um, and uh, he ended up marrying another woman uh, that I don't really talk about uh, other than to say that I had a explosive, explosively bad um, uh, relationship with her. Uh, but he had uh, hepatitis um, from going way back and uh, he died of liver cancer uh, when I was 15. Um, so the hepatitis C? Uh, B and C. Okay. Yeah. You know, my, my siblings and I were sort of left with um, a, a guardian who we did not get along with, who was we this ended the, up having. This is the stepmother? A, this is the okay. stepmother, yeah. And uh, yeah, I just, I, I, I prefer to tend to avoid talking about okay. it whenever it's really possible. Um, we, it would, we would go on to be a contentious process, um, probating his will. Uh, he, we, my mother, they, they, he successfully sued the hospital for malpractice in her, the treatment of her condition. And um, anyway, it was just a long, wearying process. Um, I split when I was 17, um, and my uh, older sister and her husband pulled up stakes and moved back to our hometown to take care of my younger brother so he had someplace to, to live and stay with and to go to high school. Yeah, and that's how I sort of emerged out into the world. Well, um, that is a rough, rough, rough childhood. To lose both parents yeah, by the age know. of 15 and and have a, and one dealing with alcoholism at the same time, um, that, that's, that's going to scar you for a long time. Um, were you, do you think this, was this something you think, did you, do you think you had some emotional uh, distress from that, 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 that might've morphed into bipolar disorder? Or do you think the bipolar disorder was there to begin with? It's, you know, it's just so hard to say. Mm -hmm. I could, I, well, I, I, my my bipolar disorder is so deeply physical that I often um, favor a kind of like neurological explanation because um, I mean it's something that I just feel mm -hmm. before I think it and it's in my whole body. Mm -hmm. But I don't really know. I mean, the, what ended up, well, part of what my problems were as a young person was I I did not recognize the onset of my disorder, uh, because, um, it just felt like mourning to me. Right. Like I just, um, I, I, I couldn't separate a, what a, a healthy kind of mindset would be from my life to that point. Because so, you were uh, mourning your mother. Yeah. And my father and, and, yeah. and just the destruction of the family, you know? So, yeah. um, like that little white house, it, um, we had been told that it was being set aside for us and then somehow it had been sold and we were not told where the money for it went or anything mm -hmm. like that, stuff like that. So it just felt like, um, just I think the family had just sort of imploded mm -hmm. very quickly. Mm -hmm. So I, I ended up, um, in my late teens, uh, 
uh, developing just really crippling sort of depression, you know, the kind of depression where I would just sort of lay in the fetal position on uh, my carpet and those shitty little apartment I had rented. Um, yeah, I'd just stay there for hours and hours. Uh, and, but unbeknownst to me, right, that was the down cycle of uh, bipolar disorder. And uh, in when I was 20, uh, I became manic and had a psychotic episode and ended up being hospitalized. So the, so yeah, and this is, this is high, just because people don't fully understand this condition. And in fact, it's still being explored and understood better. Um, but what you understood to be just crippling and actually very human sadness turned into some sort of pathological condition in which you couldn't function. And then, and then this mania takes over, which is, you call it mania, but it's just, it's, it's, it's excitability. It's being on top of the world. It's having a huge amount of self-confidence. It's the kind of condition where my mom would, would just start buying shit. She, we really couldn't afford or to be around her was to be around one of the most vivacious, fun, loving, brilliant people only to find out a few weeks later that she was in bed, unable to get up or get out of bed for days on end. Um, that's roughly how, how it, how it was for you. I mean, and, and because it's so structural, you, it's very hard to put your, it's not like you have a, a pain in your toe, which you know is your toe. It's sort of structural and it feels like feelings that you have anyway, that normally have. So it becomes hard to diagnose. And when did you begin to diagnose it? Was it after the psychotic episode? Well, so, um, I, I, so like I said, I was in this little apartment that I had rented and I was not in school at that time. I had done a little bit of college and dropped out and, um, was just sort of running away in this apartment. And, um, I got into a conflict with a neighbor, uh, in the apartment complex that I was in. Um, uh, and, uh, it sufficiently scared someone else that they called the cops and the cops showed up and they took me to uh, the local hospital uh, and they uh, jabbed me with a shot of Haldol, which is an injectable antipsychotic. Uh, and from there, they took me to uh, a nearby uh, 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 state mental health facility where I stayed for something like, I'm not sure, um, it was 20 plus years ago, but it was, it was like 19 or 20 days, something like that. How did that affect you then? realizing this was part of your life did it help to kind of know that well this is what's at work here and i now have some medications to help me uh or did as often happens as happened with my mother too there comes a point at which you're like i'm okay i don't need these meds and you you there is some stigma attached to taking meds for your depression in a way there isn't for taking it for acid reflux or, 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 or constipation or something. Right. Um, did that happen to you too? Did you, did you at some point really think I'm, I'm okay now? I don't need these things. Yeah. So I was, I was in active denial about the condition for many years. Um, and I, like, I, like I, it's very, very common for bipolar pa patients to sort of have the cycle that I did, which is to get into treatment, um, say, okay, I'm taking it seriously this time. Not, never to make the conscious decision to stop taking meds, but to just kind of stop taking them. Um, and, um, you know, it, so one of the big uh, misconceptions a lot of people have about bipolar disorder is they think that it's like 
at 10 a.m., I'm really happy and, and gleeful, but at but at noon, I'm really depressed. Um, for almost everyone, um, bipolar uh, uh, sort of manifests itself as like long cycles of mania and depression. And one of the things that can make it dangerous is when you are in between those two spaces, you just feels like being normal. And so it, it's really easy to convince yourself that you're just all right now because you're in this space in between cycles. Um, I had the added problem that um, I didn't tell anybody about it. Um, I mean, so I, I ended up like sort of formally telling my family about the diagnosis in like 2015, which is wow. like uh, 14 years after or something like that, 13 years after I, I was first diagnosed. Um, it was one of those things where, the, I mean, they were aware of stuff and uh, I could think we're just waiting for me to be, to sort of have the uh, wherewithal to sort of just actually formally announce it. Um, but um, uh, the thing is, I just didn't, I, I couldn't imagine putting that onto my siblings uh, after everything that had just happened to us. Uh, and, you know, at the hospital, they kept saying, where are your folks? Can we call your folks? And I just wouldn't talk to them about it. So. That must have been rough. Um, it, it's it's also suggests that there was some element of shame in experiencing this in a way that you wouldn't with other diseases, which is another feature of, of mental illness is that somehow there's inside you, am I making this up? Am I doing, am I the one, am, do I just need to just sort of behave myself better? Do I, am I just out of control as opposed to understanding there are some underlying chemical and biological process that work here that you really are not in control of at all. Yeah, I, uh, there, there remains a great deal of shame involved uh, with my condition. And it's something that I work through with my therapist all the time. Um, but recently, I mean, the last few years, you've been so strikingly uh, clear I mean, and candid yeah. about this stuff in a way that I think has actually been really helpful to other people who are struggling with these kinds of issues. Um, for which I am one, I'm, I'm grateful, um, having been in families with bipolar uh, depression as a, as, a, as a function. Is this also partly a function of your therapy and that's helped you come to terms with this? Does it make it easier to grapple when you name it and own it publicly? You're not running away from it in some way? Yeah, so as a combination of things, um, I had a big public scandal in 2017 associated with my last episode, uh, which, you know, um, really killed my career for a while and, and not for no reason, for understandable reasons. Um, I, I just lucked, I blundered into a great psychiatrist who I've now seen for the whole six years since that happened. Um, I just got lucky. He is uh, the father of a friend of mine. Um, and uh, he's really helped to save my life. You know, um, I think the biggest thing was just... Um, I won't get into the, all the sort of ins and outs, but it was a really hard time getting me into treatment in 2017 and finding the right facility for me. Um, my younger brother had hopped on the train and come up from Washington, D.C. to take care of me and to sort of shepherd me into the process of getting into treatment. Um, and I was, but he, he was fighting with the insurance company about where I could go. And I just remember just sort of sitting there still really fucked up um, and just thinking to myself, you know, I'm, I'm 36 years old 
and my my little brothers come to save me again. And I just I can't keep doing this. I just it, it just it just became abundantly clear to me that um, you know I just didn't have any more second chances left. Uh, and so it's been six years on meds, uh, and that sucks. <laughs> but why does um, it suck? It's, it's working. Uh, just the, the side effects are terrible. Really? Um, I get uh, I get unhealthily skinny when I am manic, like a lot of people. Right. Um, but uh, to give you a sense of sort of going from that to being on meds, um, in uh, when I when I went to the hospital in 2017, they weighed me in at 177 pounds. Three months of uh, meds later. I was 235 um, uh, and I just can't like, even just now I'm just, I'm just um, 40 pounds heavier than I uh, have any, <laughs> any right to be. Uh, and it's a constant struggle. Um, I sweat constantly. Uh, like uh, I remember when I first started dating again and I would, you know, <laughs> try to make sure everything looked great. And then I'd show up to a date and I'd just be drenched in sweat for no reason, which isn't a good look when you're trying to impress somebody. Um, uh, my hands shake sometimes. Uh, the antipsychotics uh, called uh, cause something called akathisia, which is a um, involuntary spasming of limbs. And so um, I will uh, often wake myself and my girlfriend up in the middle of the night from spasming from akathisia. Uh, the cognitive side effects of uh, antipsychotics are very challenging. It's uh, uh, they really kill focus and they kill short term memory which ended up being a huge problem at my old job. You know, it's a lot and it's hard, um, but uh, it's better than the alternative. Why do you think you ended up as a writer? I mean, it wasn't uh, well, the I only thing you... you've done. Tell, okay. tell us about some of the other jobs that you've done in the past. But, but oh, writing wow. seems to have been the one that that finally figured out, you figured out would actually make you money and make you reasonably happy. I, well, I resisted self-identifying as a writer for years yeah. after I started writing. Why? I mean, I, I would, that would tell everyone. I don't know. I think the first thing is that, um, you know, I was really wanting to be a, a, an academic, to be a professor. Uh, I got a PhD and I think I'm a, a really good teacher and I, uh, a diligent researcher. Um, uh, you know, I did get into academia. I got a job at CUNY in an administrative capacity. Uh, you know, it's difficult to get a job in, in academia when you have my politics in general, and then you add the sort of serial instability that I was, I mean, I was, a, I was, grad school was both like the best time in my life in terms of being incredibly fulfilling intellectually and socially. And also I was drinking a case of beer a day and I was constantly slipping in and out of mania, you know? Um, yeah, so I, I I wanted to define myself as an ac academic. Um, my father was a third generation professor. Um, Why uh, would your politics yeah, have been a problem? I don't understand. I mean, you at one point in your book you describe your upbringing as your household as a communist household. Uh, you grew up in a communist upbringing or something. I can't remember the exact mm -hmm. words. Yeah, is that true? I mean, communism, oh, like yeah. full on communism. My, I, I was a uh, like a literal red diaper baby. <laughs> uh, my my, uh, my grandfather was my paternal grandfather um, was the target of what were called the Broyles bills, which were Illinois state bills that were sort of proto McCarthyite. They were designed to root uh, communists out of state government. Um, he was a professor at the University of Illinois Urbana Champaign. Um, 
and he was a, a commie and a subversive, and he, uh, he had opposed our entry to, into the uh, uh, Second World War um, on pacifist grounds. Uh, and he uh, was like, literally, his name was in the bills. So yeah, he was sort of a target of them. My my paternal grandmother um, had been a civil rights and civil uh, uh, liberties uh, 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 activist. She re- received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Illinois uh, ACLU for her work doing that. Back when, you know, civil liberties and civil rights weren't seen as uh, in conflict with each other. Um yeah, and, and like I said, and my 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 uh, my, my uh, mother's father was like an old school sort of union lefty dem, and you know that's just the milieu yeah, but that I communist grew up. is is a strong word. Um, obviously, your your grandfather was, um, but were they members of the party? Did they? How how in the sixties and seventies do you actually defend communism, as it were? I mean, after the Soviet Union has kind of been exposed, it's just unbelievably horrific. Uh, totalitarian regime. I'm just curious as to, as, as to why they would. Were they still attached to the Soviet Union? Did they? Did your Did your father change his mind about the war when the Soviets ended it on our side? Um, my grandfather. Yeah, that's a good question. Okay. I don't know. He uh, he 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 drank himself to death like 15 years before I was born. Um, um, so alcoholism I, uh, is really deep in your family. It is indeed. Yeah. Um, uh, and I can tell you that, uh, uh, it's another thing that I just have cleaned up in my life. I think I've been drunk once in the past six years. I had a, a friend's 40th birthday. Um, I, I'm not going to go through the whole sort of stations of the cross of sort of saving, saying like, you know, here's sort of why communism isn't what you think it is, blah, 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 blah. In terms of like a, a party affiliation, um, CPUSA, the, the, the American communist party, for those who don't know, um, they have just a very bizarre, sort of institutional history. Um, like in 2016, they were maybe the most r- rabidly pro-Hillary Clinton outfit I'm familiar with. Really? Which is literally the, literally the opposite of what people... They, they have a really weird and tendentious sort of... I, it's, there's, a, there's a whole thing, and it's, it's very boring. But um, yeah, they're, they're, they're just a strange organization. There is no Communist Party to be part of. Look... Um, so what you're saying uh, is you just had a very left-leaning upbringing and, and it was put up ingrained. Why did you not – I know I wonder this about people. Uh, why did you not rebel against that at some point? Was there any – was there some point at which you felt maybe this isn't for me or maybe I just – because my, you know, my father you know, drunk himself to death. Um, maybe you want to re- react against your parents in some way. Did that ever occur to you at any moment? You know, it's, it's, I don't know. It's interesting. I, I – uh... I think had my parents survived, they probably would have drifted into just being kind of liberal Democrats. But I don't know if that's true. My, my father might have gotten very angry if I said that. I don't know. Um, I, I just felt that um, the more that I learned about the world, the more that it confirmed uh, elements of that worldview. Um, I have a, a profound disagreements with the interpretation of Marxism of most Marxists, but simple things um, like... I do think that it is true, like the labor theory of value, that it's workers create value, and then that value is expropriated by uh, capital. I, just, I think that that's an accurate description of the world and how it functions. But there's other things, you know. Um, so I said, I told you that we went to Bali a lot when I was young, right? Um, I was there once. It was just me and him. I, uh, I went on a trip just with him to a conference in Australia, and then we stopped in Bali for a few weeks so he could see his friends and do some research. 
Um, and uh, we tended to go up into the villages in the interior of the islands because that's where uh, some of his best friends were. And that's kind of nice because most of the tourists don't go up in there. And uh, I was awoken uh, in the middle of the night. I was 13 years old. And uh, there was my father, uh, a friend of his that I knew, and an old man that I didn't know. And uh, we loaded into what's called a Baymo, which is like a, it's a kind of kind of like a little minivan that they have in, in Bali. And uh, we drove out for a little while and I don't know what was going on. And um, the old man walked over and we showed us, it was really just a kind of nondescript mound by the side of the road. And he began talking about how that was a, uh, uh, a mass grave. Um, Indonesia, uh, I'm sure, I'm sure many of your listeners have seen the art of killing and you know, um, a lot about sort of what happened, but it's important to say that, um, Indonesia still has never really had a concerted effort to, uh, find all the bodies to explore what happened. Uh, there is a real resistance from the, from the government, uh, which is better than, uh, the Suharto government it was, but it's not great. Um, there's a real resistance to any kind of truth and reconciliation process. And those kind of mass graves are just, they're all throughout the islands. Um, they're, they're still there. And, you know, I just remember going down and putting my hand on this mound of, of, of dirt and trying to imagine dozens of bodies sort of stuffed under there. And what is not disputable is that the United States uh, aided and abetted the Sukarno government, excuse me, uh, Suharto, in the... Uh, uh, commission of these uh, atrocities, uh, provided a hit list of known uh, left-sympathizing uh, people, uh, uh, worked to diplomatically protect the people involved, etc. Um, and, you know, over a long enough time period, essentially every accusation that has been made of some sort of support of atrocities for the United States has proven to be true. And so I remember when I started blogging in like, 2008, there were still people who would say, oh, we don't really know the U.S. Uh, helped orchestrate the coup against Mossadegh in Iran. Um, you know, the evidence was overwhelming. There was prior CIA agents who openly said it. But, the, you know, the United States didn't publicly admit it until 20, I want to say 2015, you know. Um, and so that just sort of informs your worldview about, like, what the United States does as a world power. And so, like, to me, that's a rational sort of expression of what many people see as a far lefty sentiment. And yet you could go to many other countries, you could go to Cambodia, not that far away, and see even greater mass graves created by communists. Um, certainly if you added them all up, you know, the victims of Mao. The, I mean, it's not as if uh, autocratic regimes, authoritarian regimes are obviously committed atrocious acts. Um, but the totalitarian regimes, many of them communist, did, did just as bad, if not immensely worse. So why would coming across mass graves in one country somehow lead you to blame the United States for, for or is it just you just knocked it off, knocked the United States off its moral pedestal rather than condemning it in, in absolute terms? Well, I, as you as you're well aware, I could add uh, Cambodia, 
uh, from the United States side, uh, you know, carpet bombing when we have not declared right. war against them. I could add Vietnam. I could add Laos. I could add Chile. I could add Honduras. I could add Guatemala. I could but with add, the Soviet uh, Union, you could add a whole bunch of of, of places. Sure, where for sure. Mass murders took place, including in their own country, their own people, which is which is um, and the same, obviously, with communist China. But here's the thing. I'm American, right? And as an American, my first responsibility is to the moral conduct of my own country, right? And it remains the case that the United States is the most powerful country in the world. And so it coming to terms with its tendency to serially commit atrocities in other countries uh, is a, to me, greater moral value than attacking the now non-existent USSR. The USSR was a horror show. Uh, the USSR is not defensible. Uh, it's it's a uh, it's also, for the record, nothing like an authentic expression of Marxism, um, and I, I do condemn it. But like, uh, I, I'm trying to remember when we when we took out Gaddafi in Libya, like 2011, I think something mm-hmm. like that, right? So so in, in very recent history, right? Look, we, we, we have constructed United- a torture regime in Iraq. Yeah. Uh, yeah. About as right. foul a a moral position as it is possible to take, except that yeah. the person yeah. we replaced had a much more extensive and much more horrifying torture regime. Nonetheless, my concern was more with what the Americans did than what Saddam did, simply for the reason that we said we wouldn't do that. We're supposed to be above yeah. that. And we were getting rid of Saddam in order to get rid of torture, only to reimpose it you know, for our own purposes. That was my fundamental concern. I understand where you're coming from. And, and I think I appreciate your intellectual honesty. In, in, let, me, let me quote here something that you said about the left. And, and, and it sort of sums up in the book. Um, that sums up, I think, what you, what you aspire to. The left, you wrote, quote, calls for a world without poverty, without racism, without sexism, without rule by an autocratic elite, without domination by the wealthy, without environmental devastation, without vast socioeconomic inequality, without hunger or lack of shelter for the poor, without war. How realistic is that in terms of human history or in terms of the human present? Uh, it's, uh, I mean, if you're asking me analytically, it's not realistic at all. But then, uh, so how can you call for something that's completely unrealistic? Because part of the critique of your book is that that's what that's what the left keeps doing, right? But but well, okay. So here's what I'll say: there's the big overarching sort of set of goals, which of course are unrealistic in the short term, and then there's the uh, the individual expression of the ways in which we try to go about achieving that. And my position has pretty much always been um, that I agree with. the uh, big picture goals of the liberation of humankind. Uh, uh, And I think that most people, if you laid things out in those terms, would not find much to disagree with on any individual part of it. Uh, And then in in the prosecution of those things, right, I find, for example, that the conversation about anti-racism, which is vitally important, uh, has been hijacked from people saying, by people who say things like, Oh, if you post an animated GIF of a black person to Twitter, that's digital blackface, right? And so I I maintain the right to say uh, I'm dedicated to the anti-racist cause, and I think a better version of the anti-racist cause would not waste time with that sort of thing. I also want to say um, all moral systems are aspirational. 
right? Uh, Jesus tells us not to covet our wife, uh, our neighbor's wife, right? Our neighbor's wife, not not don't have sex with her, but literally don't want her, right? That's a tall task, right? And it's about it's not just about wives, right? It's about it's about not wanting things that other people have that you don't have. Uh, but um, the moral value of the attempt to transcend the the merely human, I think, has value. Except the distinction there, of course, is that. Jesus and Christianity were talking about the internal uh, revolution in one's soul, in one's outlook, which would shift your consciousness from being one that the prize self to, to one that pri- prizes others. In fact, prizes others in a way that is, is, but it's a moral internal process. You're not about that. You're about creating, actually changing structural issues of money, of, of class, of industry, of government, in order to end, let's say, sexism. Now, here's my philosophical question to you. Maybe this is just a, a real difference between conservatism and people who are not conservatives, which is that the idea, I, I understand that you can construct a system that can that can attempt to prevent discrimination based on sex, That's just, which, we, which we've done. I mean, we have a quite elaborate system of non-discrimination laws, We've also seen, um, you know, dramatic success in the last 50 years, say, of women in colleges, women in universities, women in professions. Every single aspect of life has been a huge success. Have we gotten rid of, could we ever get rid of sexism? By which I mean the, the, and again, it's important to be clear about our definitions, is that someone, male or female, regards the member of the opposite sex in some negative way and attributes that in some ways to their sex as a, as a whole. Now, when I ask myself, is that possible to ever rid humankind of? I would say no, unless there is some spiritual revolution from within, which itself is very unlikely to occur given humankind's natural fallibility. So this, so you can do so much, but a world without sexism is 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 so utopian as to be as to be worthy of the same criticism that you apply to others engaged in rather trivial uh, ex- exercises in the sake of social justice. How would you respond to that critique? Uh, well, first I would say that... Uh, Hi there. I think this is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the DishCast. You'll be able to add it to your DishCast feed and never have this, hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you too for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.substack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. And you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dish cast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered, or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. AndrewSullivan.substack.com. Subscribe 
and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe.